Welcome to The Week Ahead in Russia, a Radio Free Europe podcast on developments in Russia, its war against Ukraine, and its relations with the rest of the world. I'm Steve Gutterman, editor for Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus in the Central Newsroom at RFERL, and author of The Week in Russia newsletter. This week's podcast is about Russia's invasion of Ukraine and some of the related political and diplomatic developments, and also the situation in Russia itself uh, two weeks after an anti-Semitic riot uh, at the main airport in Dagestan. And my guest today on The Week Ahead in Russia is Olga Olicker, Program Director for Europe and Central Asia at the Crisis Group. Thanks very much for joining me, Dr. Olicker. Thank you for having me back. All right. It's great to have you on the show again. Now, the first thing I'd like to do is take stock uh, of the war in Ukraine in the context, uh, at least in part, of some of the recent events in Ukraine, in Kiev, uh, you know, on the battlefield, but also in the realm of of politics, I guess, uh, and the way the war is being framed, uh, both in Kiev and in the West at this point. I'm going to go back a couple of weeks, uh, in fact, not not quite two weeks even, uh, to something that I think may have set the tone for much of the talk about Russia's war in Ukraine uh, for some time to come. I'm talking about the article in The Economist uh, in which the commander-in-chief of Ukraine's armed forces, General Valery Zaluzhny, suggested that in some ways the war uh, may have reached a stalemate. Now, there was some nuance to his description of the situation, uh, but of course, the focus among politicians and, and the press, I think both inside and outside of Ukraine, has been on the word stalemate uh, to a large degree. And the remark uh, came in the context of Ukraine's current counteroffensive, which has not made a huge amount of progress um, in terms of how much territory Kyiv has recaptured from Russian forces since it launched the counteroffensive uh, a little over five months ago in early June. Uh, although, actually, there, there's uh, sort of uh, rumblings of news uh, just now this week about um, potential movement in the south, and also there's heavy fighting in the Donbass as before. Uh, now, Zaluzhny's article uh, set off, I would say, or played into what seemed like some discord among senior Ukrainian officials uh, if not necessarily about how the war should be fought, then at least about how it's going. And these discussions are part of what seems to be perhaps growing political debate in Kiev. A bit of a shift, I would say, in a country whose strong unity in the face of the Russian invasion has been a key reason why Moscow has not managed to subjugate Ukraine. Um, and, and this all comes at a potentially crucial time in terms of Western support for Ukraine, with the fate of further U.S. aid uh, uncertain as political wrangling continues. And, of course, we're talking about aid uh, in terms uh, largely of weapons in addition to, to financial aid. Now, my question essentially is this. Uh, I think there's no denying that the current counteroffensive is not going as well or as quickly as some certainly had hoped, uh, given Ukraine's goal of driving all Russian forces out of the country. How big a deal is this talk of a stalemate? Is it something that could end up affecting the course of the war uh, and the level of Western support? I'm interested uh, in your thoughts, Dr. Olg. 
Thank you. Look, so um, as I think, as you suggested, the word stalemate seems to mean different things to different people. This isn't a chess stalemate when, when the game is finished and it's a draw and you walk away from the chessboard. Um, that's not what they mean. Um, that's not what Zalushni means. What he means is that you have two fairly well-matched armies and neither of them is making much progress. Um, I don't know. I'd venture to say we spent a lot of the summer waiting for the counteroffensive to begin, wondering if it had begun. Um, I think at this point, it's not so much active, an active counteroffensive. It's just a continuing war. Um, and the question is, where do you go from here? And I would say, okay, so you, you read Zaluzhny and part of his argument is that technology uh, is part of, is the answer, but um, technological and other silver bullets have been hard to come by. And I don't know of the technology that's the answer to this particular problem. So I guess the other thing I would say is there were a lot of folks thinking that you were going to get to a point like this sooner or later uh, because the armies are, as it turns out, fairly well matched. And I think a lot of the reason that there were such high hopes for the counteroffensive was the Ukrainian desire to prove something to donors, right? You've poured in all this money, you've poured in all this aid, we're going to do magical things with it. And I think also add to that the fact that, well, magical things had happened before, miracles had happened, both initially at the start of the war and in the success of Ukraine's counteroffensive a year ago in uh, in fall of 2022, where they actually were able to recapture uh, large amounts of territory in both the East and the South. So voices saying, eh, you're heading for very slow, painful, attritional warfare over the course of months in which very little territory changes hands. Well, those voices were getting drowned out. Um, so, you know, the smart thing going forward might be for Ukraine to consolidate, to get its own defenses in order, to fix its mobilization system, to demonstrate that it's sustainable, um, to continue working with its partners, to indeed put a sustainable system in place. Now, that gives Russia time to consolidate as well, but they're already pretty dug, dug in as things stand. And in the meantime, everybody is going to keep shelling. You're going to continue seeing Ukrainian operations against occupied Crimea. You're going to continue to see Russian attacks on energy infrastructure through the winter, all of that. So it's not as though the war ends. Now, I think the challenge or a big part of the challenge of of consolidating and showing sustainability is Ukraine can't do that without continuing Western support. Now, when I talk to European officials, they're pretty clear that they view Ukraine's war as critical to their own security. You look at the fight in the U.S. and it looks a little bit different, um, not because, as one of my colleagues always says, if you did a straight vote in the House or the Senate, Ukraine aid would win easily. The challenge isn't that. The challenge is that you have minorities in the U.S. government that are much more skeptical. And then, of course, there's the U.S. elections coming up and the election campaigns um, that feed into that. And it does make it harder to get big aid packages through. But having said that, I would also say that a lot of aid that has been promised to Ukraine has not yet been delivered. Um, so, you know, you've got this whole pipeline of things. So it's not as though if another aid package isn't voted into law, the assistance from the United States stops. There's still quite a bit um, already moving it in the pipeline. Uh, so 
and then and then you have time to run the politics again and see what you can do and the, what the Europeans can do. Not to, I mean, this isn't to say I'm fully sanguine. I think that there are huge problems, particularly with ammunition supplies. Uh, those aren't problems of will. Those are problems of production. And those do need to get sorted out in order for Ukraine's backers to give it the support it needs. But what Russia's counting on isn't Ukraine falling apart, it's the Western support falling apart. So I would I would argue that the big challenge is demonstrating to Russia that it won't. And I don't know, this is less about the this is actually less about the state of the battlefield, I can't believe I'm about to say this, than it is about political discourse in Western countries. Yeah, absolutely. That That's a great point. Um, thanks for thanks for kind of explaining uh, a, a couple of things. For, you know, first of all, what Zaluzhny meant, uh, you know, by stalemate, um, and also what, what the what the general meant to say, uh, <laughs> uh, and and also the the idea that um, you know whether you talk about a counteroffensive or or not, you know, this is it's a continuing war, and 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 it's not. Um, and, and there's there's no uh, stalemate in terms of the, the fighting is still continuing and and, and in a, in a big way um, and there are still many things happening. I just wanted to I mean I don't want to misinterpret what you're saying, but um, certainly I think in the West, but and also in Ukraine, uh, the 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 reverberations or the from what Zaluzhny uh, wrote. Um, and, and some some other things that have been said, you know, as, as you as you I think said, is sort of more about the way things are framed than than what's going on on the battlefield. I read somewhere that it's sort of a shift in terms of Ukraine from saying, you know, we we need um, we need robust and continued Western aid um, because we're. Because with that we can now, you know, soon defeat Russia, uh, to kind of um, a shift to kind of a the message that you know if we don't get it, you know, we're in trouble if we don't get this continued. Do you, do you see that as as something that that Zeluzny was trying to say, or or is something that is happening, and 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 how could that affect? You know, is is that going to be bad news in terms of of uh, kind of rallying support, particularly maybe in the United States? Look, I think everybody knows that Ukraine is going to be in big trouble without Western assistance. Yeah. Um, uh, Western aid is what is keeping Ukraine's economy running. Uh, Western aid is paying government salaries in Ukraine, um, aside from weapons and uh and other sorts of assistance. So, you know, that's that's known. Um, if anything, what the Ukrainians are saying is if the aid stops, we'll keep fighting, which, yes, they will, but it'll be a lot less effective. Uh, it's very hard to keep fighting effectively without ammunition. Um, so I think, but I do think that there has been a sobering up in Ukraine and a recognition this could keep going for a very long time. I think that's been coming over the course of pretty much the last year. And in Western countries, too, um, I think you'll hear people say that they never expected uh, the counteroffensive to have just a tremendous, decisive success. But 
I think they kind of hoped it would. Um, and now it's clear that that's, you know, that's, that's unlikely. Um, so if you're stuck in what can be a long, grueling war, people start looking, you know, are there any alternatives to this, a long, grueling and expensive war? Um, the problem is that if you kind of say, you know, if, if you come to the Russians now under these circumstances and say, yeah, could we talk about uh, maybe putting an end to this, maybe a ceasefire, the Russians say, ah, yes, we have successfully waited you out. So we continue to want the things we've always wanted, which is a demilitarized Ukraine, uh, which is a change of government in Ukraine, which is acceptance of our right to dominate the region as a whole, which is um, also, would you mind pulling all of the NATO forces out of NATO member states that joined after the end of the Cold War? Um, Right. I mean, Russia has every reason to press very maximalist aims. Now, it may, might not get those things, but then the result of that might be that you don't get the ceasefire you want. Um, and, you know, people who are who advocate for negotiations will say, well, try anyway, you're in the same position that way as you were before. But, you know, I think not sending the Russians uh, a message of weakness is important. And I also think there's domestic political um dynamics in Ukraine that would make discussions like this very dangerous for the Ukrainian government. So people are kind of in this position of they're stuck with this continuing war, or they need to think very creatively about how you incentivize Russia to not be as maximalist, to offer concessions. And I didn't even talk about Russia's ever-changing territorial claims on Ukraine. So, you know, I think, um, I think we're going to have to wait and see what happens. I think that the desire is certainly to find a way to make this a shorter war. The irony is that in order to make it a shorter war, you have to convince your adversary that you're prepared for a longer one. And, you know, it's hard, it's hard to, uh, it's hard to accomplish both things at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks for that. And, and uh, uh, great to point out, I think, you know, all, go go back, going back to those Russian demands, uh, which Russia framed a couple months before uh, the full-scale invasion, um, in in I guess November and December, um, 2021, as as proposals. But these were, as you, as you kind of enumerated, you know, um, very ma very maximalist, and you know, there's no indication that that, that they backed down from those. Uh, at this point, so you know, and, and and they do have the the change, and and I guess added to that is certainly the you know the, the claim on the the claim of these five regions um, that they now that Russia claims are, are part of Russia. Um, so um, you know, definitely a big challenge there. Um, all right, well, I'd I'd like to uh, discuss also the situation in Russia in the context of something uh, that also happened about two weeks ago. Uh, frankly, it feels like may have already been forgotten by the Kremlin to some degree or swept under the rug. I'm talking about the anti-Semitic riot that took place on October 29th uh, at the airport in Makhachkala, capital of the Dagestan region in the North Caucasus. Uh, a large crowd of people rampaged through uh, the airport, 
inside the terminal and on the tarmac outside, looking for people they were told on social media would be arriving on a flight uh, from Israel. Um, this is obviously a few weeks um, after um, the the invasion of Israel by by Hamas, uh, which is designated as a terrorist group uh, by the U.S. and the and the EU. Uh, now. Um, this was clearly the most prominent anti-Semitic incident in Russia in years, um, but it was only one of several that took place in the mostly Muslim North Caucasus uh, around that time. Uh, Olga, I'm not going to ask you to assess uh, the level of anti-Semitism in Russia. I think that's a very complex question that would require uh, much more time than we have. What I do want to ask is, I guess, even broader in a way, though, um, what does this incident, this attempted pogrom, as as some are calling it, say about Russia today, and, and maybe what might it mean for the future? Sorry, that, that is a very broad question, but I'd be interested uh, in your thoughts. Okay, so a few thoughts. Um, I mean, one thought is that the North Caucasus hasn't historically been such a hotbed of anti-Semitism in Russia. Uh, so these events may also speak to how easy it is to rile up a population. And we do know that since the October 7th Hamas attacks in Israel, the Russian media has been, let's say, very anti-Israel, which, um, according to Russian friends, often spills into their neighbors, um, becoming more anti-Semitic uh, in the things they say. Um, and, yeah, I think you can look at the... Uh, incidents in the North Caucasus um, in that light. Also, maybe this is a digression, but I find it really interesting uh, what gets called a pogrom and what doesn't. The the meaning the word has for different people. uh, Among Russians, I find it's often used to just mean a big mess, uh, whereas for many of the rest of us, it implies extreme violence. In this case, we're talking about something that uh, was violent and could easily have been far more violent. So, you know, a pogrom in the uh, more traditional sense. But I think the question you're getting at is, does this mean Russia is getting out of control? And here I start thinking about the United States and Charlottesville uh, in 2017, January 6, 2021. And the answer to that is, well, yeah, it does mean that things are a little bit out of control. It shows the system is brittle. That doesn't mean it's about to come crashing down, right? talk to some Ukrainians about how this war ends, their their theory victory involves the collapse of Russia. Um, I don't think we're there. But it does mean that government monopolies on violence aren't quite what the average state would like them to be. Um, I would say in both the United States and Russia in very different ways. There are very specific policies that have led to the loss of government monopolies on violence. Um, they're very different policies, as I said, but they are they're state policies, right? And if you go back to the Prigozhin uh, mutiny, attempted mutiny in the summer, this is another one of these cases. And it's also about the lack of monopoly of violence. The other thing it shows is there's a lot of pressure in Russia. And um, finally, I mean, again, that when media and social media spew hate, they don't always control how people are going to pick up on that hate. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think we're I would certainly say odds are we will see more incidents in Russia. Are they going to bring down, by that I don't necessarily mean anti-Semitic attacks, though I wouldn't exclude that, um, 
for. I just mean that we're we're looking at a system where people are angry. There's a lot of frustration. There's a lot of scapegoating, um, and indeed, and there are a lot of armed people. Uh, the state of the monopoly of, on, of violence is uh, is imperfect to say the least. So, we'll see where it takes uh, where it takes Russia. Thus far, Moscow has continued to be much more forceful against um, middle-aged folks holding blank pieces of paper on Red Square or on city squares than against, um, at least in the moment, against insurrectionists uh, or violent actors, though the, the Russian insurrectionists did eventually face uh, very dark fates, just not immediately afterwards. Um, Thus far, the instigators uh, of this uh, this attack in Dagestan, um, there's been very little action. It's been very it's been very mild. It's not clear exactly what's going on. Perhaps they too uh, need only await their fate. But somehow I doubt it. Um, all of which to say that I do not know what's going on. But uh, I'm also keeping an eye on it. Yes, thanks very much. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I agree. I have the same kind of experience where it's 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 unclear what's happening. Th- that's kind of why I I preface this by saying it seems like you know the Kremlin may have sort of forgotten about this. Of course, the Kremlin. I'm sure the Kremlin hasn't forgotten about what happened. But I guess the you know a question is whether whether they're taking it seriously and whether they're sort of I guess learning from 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 mistakes or wh- whether they think it's whether they think it's a big deal whether Putin and uh you know other people in the government think it's a big deal and something that they have to, have to worry about on the surface there sort of aren't uh great really big signs that that they do I mean it seems like a big deal but I also think that the Russian pattern is that if it's a big deal and you don't know how to respond to it you wait and you respond to it later and that does seem like something that that Putin uh, often does, uh, kind of wait and respond later, uh, or, or or not. Um, all right. Uh, well, thanks very much. Um, thanks very much, uh, Olga. Um, we're going to wrap it up here. Um, really appreciate uh, your analysis. So thanks very much for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. All right. Once again, I've been speaking to Dr. Olga Oliker the Program Director for Europe and Central Asia at the Crisis Group. And my name is Steve Gutterman, Editor for Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus in the Central Newsroom at RFERL. This has been The Week Ahead in Russia. Our theme music is Nyestrelai, or Don't Shoot, a song from the early 1980s by Yuri Shevchuk and DDT. Please be sure to check out my newsletter, The Week in Russia, which covers the latest developments in Russian politics and society, as well as Moscow's invasion of Ukraine. Subscribe by visiting www.rferl.org.